It's not just a warm-up for God's word. And so that's why we will be having a longer worship set at the end rather than a longer worship set in the beginning. Because God's word inspires us to worship, not the other way around, right? All right, so raise your hand if you do not have a Bible. You are not allowed to not have a Bible here. We read the Bible at Calvary Chapel, okay? So raise your hand if you do not have a Bible, and Aaron will come and get them to you. I'm blessed not only to have a a wonderful group of people here tonight, but I'm also blessed that Dave Johnson is planting a church in Calabasas tonight, and it's his first service. All right, so let's pray for him right now before we get into the word. Amen. Lord, I thank you so much for Pastor Dave. God, and just his, and how much he's gone through, Lord. God, the trials and fire that he's gone through in just the past few years of his life, Lord, and for him to be planting a church, God, it's just a symbol of your power and your sovereignty over our lives. God, I pray that you would equip your saints for ministry tonight, Lord. I know that uh, his son, God, Dave, is, is working with the little kids tonight, Lord, and I'm just, I pray that you'd equip him, Lord, and Lynette, God, and Whoever's doing worship for them, Lord, and I just pray, God, that you would anoint that fellowship tonight. Bless them tonight, Father. Thank you so much, Lord, that you have used this church, Lord, this congregation, God, to birth another church. Lord, we are on mission for you, and we are on fire for you, Lord. And we thank you that we are able, as we will learn tonight, to partake in your miracles. We love you, Jesus. And we all pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So please turn with me to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We're going to be going through verses 1 through 11. Uh, Tonight we're going to be dealing in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We're going to be dealing with Jesus' first miracle. Last week uh, Aaron took us through, which actually immensely helped me this week, um, how, how Jesus dealed with temptation in the desert. And it actually, it profoundly affected my life in just the short amount of time in between then and now. And so I pray that you guys would continue to come and bring your friends to be blessed by what we learn in God's word here. We're going to be dealing with Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six water pots of stone, according to the manner of the purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the, what? The brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning... Uh, sets out the good wine, and when the guests have all well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifests his glory, and his disciples believed in him. God, we pray again, Lord, that you would bless this word. God, I thank you that this is your holy and inspired word, Lord, and how you choose to reveal yourself to us. We love you, Lord. Jesus, be glorified tonight. May I decrease to the lowest level that you might increase. None of me and all of you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. To give you all a little context, Cana was a small village around four or five miles away from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. All right, Jesus of Nazareth. Cana was a small village estimated around 300 to 400 people, perhaps even less. And and here, Jesus is invited to a wedding, not to flip over tables, okay? He wasn't here to judge anybody. Jesus wasn't here to do mass healings. He wasn't here to preach. 
He wasn't making it a triumphant entry. He didn't burst through the door and say, I'm here, everyone. Look at me. Okay, he was invited to a wedding, all right, to enjoy the fellowship of his, of his fellow tribesmen, the, the people that he's grown up with. No doubt, judging by the amount that Mary was involved in the wedding, that these were either family or family friends that Jesus was with. Jesus was invited to a wedding, not to preach, but to have fun. We forget this sometimes, that Jesus had fun. Sometimes it's, it's a little odd for us to, to remember that. Now, weddings back then were not like weddings now, for further context. Weddings now are amazing and brilliant, sometimes an inconvenience. We have to drive a long time in traffic, right? We have to find a babysitter, okay? Sometimes it's a little bit of an inconvenience, but a joy nonetheless. And, and, and a wedding, you know, if it's a, if it's a good, hearty, long wedding, it'll probably, you know, last up to six hours, Okay, if that's a long wedding, uh, most of the weddings that I've been to don't really last more than four hours, you know, four hours tops. Back then, in this culture, weddings didn't last a day like they do here. They didn't last two days. They didn't last three days. They lasted a week. Weddings were a week long in this culture. And so what they would do, they they do the religious ceremony, and that would take up to a day with the religious ceremony, and then they would have a great feast that would last to six to seven days, okay? This was a long, long celebration, and it wasn't only exclusive for family, friends, and family. Pretty much the entire tribe, the entire village was invited, And for a small village like Cana, we can probably assume that literally the entire village was there. The entire village was there to uh, partake in the celebration of the union of these two people. And since weddings didn't happen all the time, they had the potential to be the biggest event of the year for the village. The biggest event of the year. Everyone knew about it. Everyone was waiting. Everyone would stop what they were doing just to attend the wedding. Weddings were a way bigger deal back then than they are now. Not to say weddings aren't a big deal now. But back then, I mean, to last a week, that's a big deal. And it's worth pointing out that a lot of people invited Jesus to parties. We also forget this. A lot of people invited Jesus to parties. All throughout scripture we see this. Okay? And in the Pharisees even ridiculed Jesus and even mocked Jesus for the fact that he went to parties with who they considered to be sinners. A lot of people invited Jesus to their house to partake in feast and drinking of wine. He was the life of the party. Everyone wanted Jesus over. He was an enjoyable person to be around. He wasn't a cosmic buzzkill. He wasn't flipping over tables everywhere he went. People enjoyed him being around. He was a fun guy, and he loved to have fun in the proper context. You know, sometimes in our Christian bubble, we can trick ourselves into thinking that stoicism equals spirituality. That, that, that's something that sometimes baffles me, that, that people can read this and become more boring. If you look at Acts, that, that's totally contradictory. Christianity should enlighten your life. It, 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 should, it should set a fire in your life that you've never seen before. Stoicism does not equal spirituality, and anyone that tells you differently is wrong. It's not biblical. You know, I've had parents, you know, for those of you who don't know, I run a junior high ministry, and I've had parents openly say that trips to the beach, movie nights, and trips to Magic Mountain, I am, they said, quote, stunting their spiritual growth by taking them out to the beach or taking them to movie nights and stuff like that. I've had parents that said that. And I don't tell them just, you're wrong, but they're wrong. There's, there's something beautiful about Christian fellowship and just having fun together. There's something absolutely beautiful when you rejoice in the presence of God's people. Going out to sushi after service is great. Going out to coffee before service, amazing. 
Christians are to enjoy each other outside of church as well. That's just a side note. It's not the thrust of our message tonight, but as a junior high pastor, I feel it's my duty to tell you we have to have fun, okay? Have fun. Enjoy yourselves. Jesus did. Jesus did. And in the Jewish culture, I also want to point out that hospitality is everything. When there was a guest at your house and you told them that there was going to be wine, there's going to be wine. Okay? If you told them there's going to be a lamb, there's going to be a lamb. Hospitality was everything. In our culture, it's like, I I know I told you that we were going to have roast beef, but, you know, I, I kind of, you know, my schedule got busy. We're okay, you know, you know, there's grace. But back then, hospitality was absolutely everything. And if you did not own up to what you promised to your guest, that was basically spitting in their face, saying you're not really a worthy friend. That was the culture back then. And so for them to run out of wine was huge. Especially since the rabbinical symbol of joy is wine. Okay, the symbol for joy back then was wine. So when Mary comes up and says, they have no wine, she is saying, there's no more joy. The joy is running out. It's running low. The joy is running low. We have no more wine. And back then, it's not like she was asking, hey, Jesus, can you go run over to the liquor store? Because back then, as well, to, we, we had to get context down. Back then, they would store up as much wine as possible the entire year and then use it all for this wedding. Okay, They had stockpiled it all up. There was no, hey, let me go to my neighbors and get wine. There was none of that. Okay, They had used up all their wine for that season. And there would be no more wine until the next harvest. This was huge. When Mary is saying they have no wine, she's saying a lot. They have no wine. And those four words, there's so much depth. It is a loaded statement that Mary gives. They have no wine, judging by Jesus' reaction that we know it is an incredibly loaded statement. Could you please perform a miracle, is what she's saying. Please perform a miracle. Not only because I'm involved in this wedding and I want people to have a good time and I don't want the bride and groom to suffer at the hands of angry guests. But because Jesus, I never got a wedding like this. I was pregnant with you. Please perform a miracle so the world will know that I wasn't crazy. That the world would know that I wasn't lying. That the world would stop ridiculing me for adultery. Because we see when Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees, they say, well, at least we weren't born out of fornication. Saying, at least we know our fathers, Jesus Your mother was sleeping around and look at you. This is what Mary dealt with. Imagine that. She's saying, Jesus, vindicate me, please. Jesus, show the entire world. Show all of these people that that you are the son of God. And that it was all worth it. Please. Vindicate me, Jesus. Show them I wasn't lying. Jesus replies, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Saying woman and woman is not saying woman. Don't talk to your mothers that way. (laughs) Woman was the equivalent of me saying ma'am. It's a polite term. Ma'am, what does your concern have to do with me? Mary, God has gifted you with that burden. What does that have to do with me? And he's also saying, woman, ma'am, Mary, doesn't call her mom, because now the roles have switched. The roles have switched now. 
It is no longer a son and mother relationship. You see, when Mary comes up to Jesus and says, they have no wine, she's not coming as a mother to her son anymore. She's not. It's not, Jesus, can you please pick up your room anymore? It's not that. It's Jesus, can you please perform the miracle as the Savior of the universe? The role has switched from son and mother to Savior and sinner. This is what has just happened. When he says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Jesus is now defining the roles between Mary and him. Saying, I'm your king. And my hour has not come. He's not rebuking her. He's not openly being rude to her. He's saying, my hour hasn't come, Mary. The world's not ready for this. And when was his hour? That was in the triumphal entry. We know it as Palm Sunday. Where everybody would declare that Jesus was the Messiah, the Lord. And they would say, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. This was the time of Jesus when he was spoken of. This is what he was talking about. He's saying, Mary, now is not the time where I'm declaring my godhood to everybody. It's not the time. But he's going to do it. And he's going to do it silently. So nobody knows except for a few people. He consents to this. And we don't really see it in scripture. We don't see Jesus saying, okay, Mary, I'll do it. We see Mary saying, we have no wine. Her, him saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. And then Mary saying to the servants, do what he tells you to do. Okay, so somewhere there was an exchange of maybe glances or like nods or winks or clicks or whatever it was where Mary is like, okay, he's going to do this thing. All right, and he wasn't going to do it publicly like Mary had originally wished. He was going to do it silently so his people are blessed. He's going to do it silently so his people are blessed. I'm going to say that one more time. He's going to do it silently so his people are blessed. Jesus consents. Why? I've narrowed it down to two, even though there's not only two reasons. Just know that I'm not that smart. Okay? I got two reasons. One, Jesus loves people. Okay? There's two reasons why he consented to turning water into wine. First reason, he loves people. He loves his people. He loves the people around him, his friends and his family friends. He loves us. He loves people. Jesus likes being around people, and he loves it when they celebrate union. He loves it when they celebrate communion with one another. He loves it when they celebrate with one another, and they have joy, and they worship together. He loves it. He rejoices in that. And so Jesus supports joy. He loves nothing more than the people of God to gather together and celebrate each other. He loves that. What do you think worship is? What do you think you do when, when you're reading those words? I'm getting warmed up for the message. <sighs> then you sit. No, you're rejoicing. You're rejoicing because the Savior of the universe has had the grace to come down and die for you? You're also rejoicing with the fact that you have Christian brothers and sisters next to you and you all have a common cause, which is the glory of God. That's why you worship. You don't worship to prepare for anything. You worship. Actually, you do worship to prepare for something. Heaven. That's all you're going to be doing in heaven is worshiping. Rejoice with one another. And that's what Jesus loves. Ecclesiastes 9, 7 through 8 says, Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. Enjoy yourselves. Enjoy. Enjoy the presence of one another. Colossians 3.16. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Man, 
Jesus wants his people to enjoy his blessings and his miracles. To gather together and worship and in hymns and in songs and in study. To just gather and just soak up the glory of God. And relish in it. The first reason. He loves people and he loves people that enjoy him and enjoy his people. Second reason. He's a groom. Jesus is a groom. Jesus is a bridegroom. So who's his bride? Anybody? We are. Jesus is a groom and we are his bride. And so he's here at the wedding and he has the heart of a groom. And he sees his bride before him. I want to bless them. I want to bless them. They are my bride and I will take care of them. Jesus loves marriage. Jesus loves marriage because it is a perfect symbol of him and his church. Not a perfect symbol. It's a broken mirror. But it's a symbol nonetheless. Jesus loves marriage. It's a symbol of him and his church. Jesus is declaring in this miracle that he supports marriage. Now some of you are like, yeah, all right, Zach, let's go into gay rights. Let's do this. You guys are ready. No, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. Jesus is declaring his support for marriage, the foundation of marriage. He loves it. He loves marriage because he's like, the love that the husband has for the wife is the exact love that I have for my bride. And the submission that the bride has for the husband is the exact, yes, yes. I love it. In Revelation 19, 7, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. The wife being who? Us. Ephesians 5, 25 through 29 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave herself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Jesus is taking care of his church. Husbands, you are to take care and love your wives. I love the fact that we're his bride. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful symbol. Jesus is here preparing for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, Do you want, I want to give my bride good things. I want to give her stuff. I want to give her her wine. I want her to enjoy herself. I want to bless her. I want to serve her. And it's the same mentality that husbands ought to have for their wives. I can't speak with authority by myself. It's God's word, not mine. I'm not married, but. And some of you right now, because you're saying, okay, Zach, the two reasons why Jesus turned water into wine is because he loves people. He wants good things for her and he wants good things for his bride and the church. All right. And that Jesus is a groom and yeah, good things, good things, good things, good things. Some of your prosperity gospel signals are flaring up right now. Okay. I'm not going Joel Osteen on you. Okay. I promise. All right, this is not prosperity gospel in the sense where if you're a Christian, only, you know, just tons of joy and happiness and merriment 24-7, okay? That every single week will be like a marriage feast. It's not true. I'm going to tell you something. This, this, is, this is the main application of tonight. Joy is always coupled with servitude. Okay? Joy is always coupled with servitude. The two go hand in hand. A joyful heart and a servant's heart combine as one, always, in God's kingdom. 
okay? You don't have joy without servitude to come together. This is expressed perfectly in verses 5 through 10. I'm going to reread it for you. His mother said to his servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there were set six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. What would happen throughout an entire feast? It was Jewish law that you had to wash your hands before you eat. So the servants, they would come, they'd wash the, the guest's hands, all right? Then they would come, wash the guest's hands. They'd be continually washing the guest's hands. And eventually, the water pots were empty, and we were out of wine. So perfectly, okay, there was empty pots and They were ready to be filled for Jesus' miracle. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water and that it was wine, he did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn drawn, uh, the water knew the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man in the beginning sends out the good wine. And when the guests of all well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. The master of the feast was kind of like the caterer. He was, he was the guy who pretty much organized. He was the wedding planner. Okay. He knew his stuff. He knew that naturally you bring out the good wine first, then kind of have the cheap box stuff. All right. At the end. Okay. That's what you do because everyone's like, I don't even care. You know? That's, that's just how it works. You bring out the cheap stuff last. Every, everyone's too tipsy and drunk to even care. Okay? But this, this guy knows what he's talking about. This is how you save some money. All right? Tips for when you're having a party. Okay? Not really. If you're 21. This guy knew what, this guy knew what he was saying. Okay? He's saying, you saved the best for last. Right on. Now, there are two parties who enjoyed this miracle. There are two different types of people that enjoyed this miracle. The guests and the servants. These are the two different types of people that enjoyed the miracle that Jesus had created. Okay? This turning of water into wine. The guests and the servants. Now the servants, in complete obedience to Jesus, got to experience his first miracle. How beautiful is that? Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled it to the brim. Jesus, we're out of wine. Okay, go fill that up with water. Jesus, I'm no chemist, but water, wine, two different things. He's like, do it. All right. And so not knowing what's happening, in faith, they fill all the water pots to the brim. Doing everything on to excellence. They fill the water pots up to the brim. They bring it to Jesus. Now remember back in Colossians and Ecclesiastes when we spoke of joy, singing, and eating with, unto the Lord. Now the verse on joy is coupled with another verse on servitude. If you look on the next verses that I had read to you previously. In Colossians 3.17, and whatever you do in the word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Joy is coupled with servitude. Always. Always. Think of in your own lives. Think of the joys that you experienced as a child. That was a result of the servants' hearts of your parents and the people around you. Think of the joy that you've had with friends. It's usually as a result of people coming around you and and really pouring into your life and being good hosts. My mom is really good at this. Okay, we just had a party right before we got here. And, And our joy, our joy with all the food and all the drinks and all the wonderful atmosphere is a result of her servant's heart. We enjoy because she served. Our joy was coupled with her servitude. Joy is incomplete without it. Totally incomplete. The joy that you have when you come to church, whether it be Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, it's, it's only as a result of the servants' hearts of the staff. Because of their love for Jesus. 
joy is coupled with servitude. The luxuries, the pastries that are out there at the end of Sunday morning service, that's, that's a result of people making it. Does that make sense? Onto the Lord. This should be, at least it is for me, convicting. This should be convicting. In Ecclesiastes 9.9, 9, it says, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Essentially, your portion in life is a result of the labor you give. Some of you are like, man, I have never seen people come to Christ in my life. I've never led anybody to Christ. And you know, I haven't seen these huge miracles happen. How much are you serving? Are you a guest or a servant? Friday nights, we have, we have a college study. And, and just this week, we, we, after we do a study, we, we all get together for, you know, to have dinner and witness to anybody who's around us. And, and I'm not going to name him, but he knows who he is. He's in this room. You know, he was like, Zach, he, you know, he pointed me. He's like, Zach, there's going to be healing happening tonight. And, and I'm like, oh, whatever. <laughs> Honestly, I'm just like, oh, cool, hey. And, and then sits down this girl, this college girl. She sits down, and she has a splint around her leg. We're like, I'm like, oh. <laughs> so he, there really is going to be a healing that's happening tonight. And, and, and she undoes her splint, and her, her knee is swollen, okay? And she can barely walk on it. She's been limping. I saw her limp up. This guy... Puts his hands over her. We all put our hands over her. And lo and behold, put our hands off after we pray. And she's healed. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. Right? Thank you, Jesus. And we can only witness these things when we extend our hands. I got to experience the joy. She got to experience the joy because we extended our hands in prayer and in obedience to God. And it wasn't just one of us to put our hands. It was all of us because we filled the water pots to the brim. Some of you are so discouraged because you've never witnessed any amazing mountains moved in Jesus' name. And I would propose to you that is a result of you not extending a servant's heart. I am guilty of this a lot. I am very guilty of this. In Judges 1, I'm going through Judges 1. I'm going through all of Judges with one of the students in junior high. I'm just doing personal discipleship. We were going through Judges. And, and we were just studying Judges 1 when, when we have the tribe of Judah and Caleb. And they're coming in and they're taking the promised land. And they're obeying God and they're fighting through. And they're taking the land that was promised to them. in victory after victory after victory. Judah's kicking butt. All right, Caleb's kicking. They're all just going in. Yes. Then the tribe of Manasseh comes. They're like, well, and then they run. It's like they, they didn't even put forth that much effort. And then the tribe of Dan comes. They're like, oh, no, right? They, they, they just, they're scared, and they don't extend the mighty power that God has given them. And lo and behold, they're, they're driven out of the land until the tribe of Joseph comes in and does it for them. And picks up for their slack. And some of you may be wondering something. When I said that there's two different types of people that enjoy this miracle, there's the guests and the servants. Some of you are wondering, well, am I a guest or a servant? Well, I, guess, I suppose sometimes I can be a guest and sometimes I can be a servant, depending on how I feel that day or how spiritual I'm feeling. I can be a guest and I can be a servant. And, you know, I can choose and I can wake up in the morning and decide which one I'm going to be. No, you can't. You can't decide. At least not if you're a Christian. Christians don't have the luxury of being guests. They don't have the luxury of being spectators. Why? Because they know Jesus. 
These servants know Jesus and have direct orders from Jesus. So they're not, they're not allowed to just say, step back and say, I'm going to watch the other servants do it. Because they know they have gotten direct orders from Christ. They're not guests anymore. They're servants. And so us as Christians, we're not guests. We're servants. A lot of us, we want to wake up. Ah, just this morning at church, I want to be a guest. I just want to be a guest. I want to be, mm, I want people to pour into me. And I've had this conviction lately, as I look for a college group, you know, where, you know, in midweek where I can just be served. That's, you know, that's literally been my mentality lately. I'm just like, I want to find a group where I can just sit down and be served. And literally every college group I've gone thus far, I've just been like, God's been like, hey, they need to be served. <laughs> and I'm like, God, I work every day for you. Do you know what I do? Do you know what I do for you? I just want this one time to be served. And he's like, you don't have that luxury anymore. I've saved you. Now go bless my bride, Zach. That's my bride out there. You take care of them. Do you know why you do it? Yes. Why do you do it, Zach? Because I love you, Lord. And you've declared that you want me to feed your sheep. So I'm no longer going to just come and sit in a church and be like, all right, pastor, what do you got for me? What do you got to offer me, bro? Talk quickly. I'm already thinking of going to Lighthouse. We're not allowed to do that as Christians. The servants knew, and it says, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. The servants knew what happened. And I would submit, I would propose that these servants were more on fire, more ecstatic than the guests. Wouldn't you agree? They actually knew what would, that was water like a minute ago. (laughs) Not even a second ago. Like that's, that's what, whoa. You imagine these servants' minds completely blown? They were way more on fire for Jesus at that point than the people that were just drinking, right? Guys, it's not a burden. It's not a burden to serve God. It's not. It's a joy because Jesus wants us, gives us the privilege of being a part of his miracles, of partaking in the miracles. Through faith, filling up those jugs to the brim. It's not a burden because we get to see water turn into freaking wine. It's not a burden because we can see the legs stop swelling and a girl just hug this guy saying, Are you kidding me? It's healed. How did did this happen? Joy is coupled with servitude. The servants were way more on fire than the guests. And so some of you are like, I just want to be a guest. I just want to sit and just be fed. I just want to be a guest here, please. Well, here's what you're doing. You're robbing yourself of the joy of being a servant. You're robbing yourself of the joy that comes with watching others come to Christ. And watching others be blessed. And more than all of that, watching Jesus be glorified. A lot of the times, I judge how well a service went with the junior high group on their reaction after the message during worship. And I'm not saying all of them are like, yeah, which most of them are usually. They're junior highs. They just don't care. Like, I'm a, mm. They don't care what anybody thinks, but, but also the fact where I can, I can just see them in, in, their, in their heads where they're just like, oh my gosh, Jesus' word is awesome. And then sometimes there's, there's just that spark in, that, in their eyes where it's like, I get it. And they worship, and I'm like, the joy that they're feeling right now is nowhere near the joy I'm feeling right now. 
and I got, I got to serve them. That's amazing. The joy of the servant is always greater than the joy of the guest. Every single time. That's why I'm baffled at God's love. I'm baffled at God's love. And, and I can just imagine that the joy, the joy that Jesus has in himself, when, when he sees us working and he, he sees us doing these things, because he's like, that's a result of him serving us on the cross. I can just imagine that joy that he has. When, when we go out into the world and, and be like light and salt, we gather and scatter. I can just, the joy that Jesus has and the joy that he had when he saw all of his people rejoicing with the wine and then the servants and his disciples glorifying him. And to bring it back to God, so just, just bring it back into how do we obtain this type of servant's love? How on earth can we obtain servant's love, servant's heart? How can we attain the heart that Jesus had for us on the cross? How can we, how can we really fathom that? How can we at least try and replicate that type of agape love that God has for us. That he would self-sacrificially give himself up. And I was really pondering this in my heart all throughout the week. And I've expressed it to the junior high group. And I've expressed it to the college group. I'm just like, this is a really big deal. Some of you might already know this, but it's, a new, it's news to me. In, in, in Acts, I totally... Forgive me, forget what part in Acts, okay? Where, where, where Paul's walking among the Greeks, and there's this huge statue that says, to the unknown God. And Paul's preaching to these Greeks, and he, and, he's, and he says somewhere along the lines where it's like, as if God needed anything from you. As if God needed your religion. And then I thought, God, God why, why do you have so much love for us? And the answer came in this. And he told me this, not audibly, like I said in my last sermon, but I found this out. God, how can you love me so much? And he says, because I don't need you. It's I don't need you, Zach. I don't need your worship. I don't need your service. And I don't need to keep you alive. That means... My love for you is pure because I'm not looking to gain anything from you. God, God's love is so pure because he doesn't need you. God's love is so pure because he's not looking to gain anything from you. He doesn't have an ulterior motive in his love where he's like, maybe if I can get them to serve in this way, they'll do something that I want that will puff up my pride or do something like that. God doesn't need you, which means that every decision that he makes for your life and every order and command that he gives you is all for your benefit and ultimately for his glory. God's love is so pure because he doesn't need anything from us. That means that we get so mad at God, why won't you let me have this? Or God, why do you give me these trials? I didn't ask for this. How selfish are you, God, that you would do this to me? How selfish are you that you would have all this division in my family, that you would take my parents, my kids away from me? How selfish are you, God? And God is declaring openly through the cross, listen to me. I'm not selfish. I don't need anything from you. Every single thing that's ever happened in your life, every trial, every blessing has all been to your benefit. I am not trying to skew you in any particular way for my own ego. My love is pure. All the time, I will try to manipulate people for my own benefit and I'll act like I'm serving them. Have you ever done this where it's like you serve people and, but subtly and secretly, you kind of want them to serve you back. God's not like that. 
He serves you and says it's finished. He doesn't desire anything else from you. Which means that the servant's hearts that we have towards others and towards God, it's not because we have to do anything for God. It's because we want to. The less that you are dependent on other people, the more you can love them. I'm going to say it again. The less dependent you are on other people, the more that you'll love them. Because you're not looking for anything from them. A newborn child doesn't have that much love for his mother. Okay? Uh, Thus waking them up at 3 o'clock in the morning. What can you give me? Wah, wah, wah. Change my diaper. But the love that a mother has for a child, as Pastor Rob last weekend perfectly described, is agape, self-sacrificing love. Because she doesn't need the baby, right? A mother doesn't need her child. It's not like she's raising this child so that, she can, that the child can ultimately take care of her or do something for her. She's raising it because she loves it. She's raising the child for the very sake that I love you. You're my child. It's the same love that God has for us. He's saying, I don't need anything from you. I am going to help you grow. I'm going to guide you through life. I don't need anything from you. I'm doing this for you. Because I love you. I love you. And that's it. Bottom line. It's not like, I love you, but can you do this for me? No, it's I love you. And so that means that servitude is on our part now. Servitude is out of love for God. It's out of that, I want to, you know, the less dependent I, I, I am on my parents, because slowly I'm, I'm starting to get into this place where I'm, I'm gradually being less and less dependent on them, and I can honest, I can literally feel my love for them growing. Because now it's like, how can I serve my mom and dad? It's no longer what can I take from them. And I think about all the time when I was a kid, where my parents were disciplining me. I'm like, that's not fair. I'm basically saying, stop loving me. And so when we declare to God, God, don't tell me what to do. That's not fair. We're telling God, stop loving me so much. Stop it. When you reject God's commands, you're saying, God, stop loving me right now. When you reject his word, you're saying, God, stop loving me the way that you want to love me. I'm good without you. And I love that even when I don't serve and when I do fall short, the cross already occurred. And this should bring you comfort. It's not like I'm serving God so he serves me back. I'm serving God because he served already. He's served me. He's given his life for me. The gospel is the good news that my sins are covered past, present, and future because Jesus Christ took all the blow on his shoulders and was the ultimate service, not counting himself equal to the Father, but putting himself in the role of a servant for the benefit of all of us. And so I'm not saying, God, I can, can I do this for you so that you would die on the cross for me? No, I'm saying, God, I'm doing this because you've died on the cross for me. I don't want to be a guest. I want to be a servant. That's where, the more, that's where more joy is. And I want to rejoice in the presence of God and his people tonight. Do you want to do that with me? Do you want to rejoice in the gifts that God has given you? And rejoice in the gift that is your potential servitude in this church and in all the, all the people that you're surrounded by? Let's worship. Amen? Lord, I thank you so much for this time. God, I pray that anything that was said of me would be forgotten tonight and anything said of you would be remembered. God, I want agape, self-sacrificing love for you and your people. 
I don't want to treat people like objects. I don't want to be dependent on anyone but you. God, as, as my love for you increases, help my love for other people increase. As our love for you increases, help our love for others increase. Help us to not be guests here, Lord, but servants. And this is the joy that we will ultimately have. Thank you so, so much for what you've done on the cross. God, I pray for those people whose hearts may be burdened tonight. God, I pray that you would uplift it in the joy of your presence, Lord. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would impact this place tonight. God, that you would come like a torrent, Lord, that that is just completely unrelenting. God, let us experience your love and not just know it tonight. We love you, Jesus. We love your we love your grace. We love your peace that you provide. And we love your church, your bride, Lord. God, Christians are many Christs. Christians are Christ followers, Lord. Which means we should have love for your bride as well. We love you, Jesus. Lord, give us a burden for your people. God, give us a love that won't cease. Give us a love that won't stop. Give us a love that won't relent. And help us realize that it's all because you loved us first, Lord. And that we're not doing anything to earn salvation, Lord. There's no way one can earn salvation. But God, we'd be doing everything out of love and adoration for you. We love you, Jesus. Once again, I'll say it again. We love you, Jesus, for everything that you've done. Help us to worship with joy tonight. Jesus is holy, mighty, and unchanging name.